But let's pray before we dive in. God, we, we do thank you for your word, and we pray that it would speak to our hearts and that we would be transformed by it. So please now guide us and lead us, help us to really have hearts that are willing to listen, uh, to be instructed, to be corrected if need be, but to draw closer to you. And so have your way with us in Jesus' name. Amen. So the book of Philemon is very short. It's one of the shortest books in the New Testament. Um, and it's a, it's a personal letter. It's not a letter to a church. It's a letter to an individual. It's a letter to a man named Philemon. And so um, Paul writes off. He starts off like most, like all of his epistles. He says you know, to Philemon, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. May the grace of God be with you. May the peace that flows as a natural result of that be yours in your life. And verse four, he says, I thank my God always, making mention of you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and the faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints. And I pray that the fellowship of your faith may become effective through the knowledge of every good thing which is in you for Christ's sake. For I have come to have much joy and comfort in your love because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, brother. So this is, a, this is Paul writing to a, to a dear friend. This is not Paul writing to a stranger or to a church he's never been to or to a, a leader who needs correction. This is Paul saying, hey, I am, I am deeply thankful for you uh, because I'm hearing of what you're doing. I have much joy and comfort in your love because the hearts of the saints are being refreshed by you. You are doing a good work for the Lord. And then he goes on in verse 8. He says, therefore, though I have enough confidence in Christ to order you to do what is proper, yet for love's sake, I rather appeal to you since I am such a person as Paul, the aged and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus. He says, hey, I'm thankful for you, and I've got something I want to ask you. And I know that based on the reports I hear of your character and your conduct, I could probably tell you to do it, and you would do it, but you might be tempted to do it with a bad attitude. So I'm going to ask you to do this. And he says in verse 10, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus. Uh, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment, who formerly was useless to you, but now is useful both to you and to me. I have sent him back to you in person, that is, sending my very heart, whom I wish to keep with me, so that on your behalf he might minister to me in my imprisonment for the gospel. But without your consent, I didn't want to do anything, so that your goodness would not be in effect by compulsion, but of your own free will. For perhaps he was for this reason separated from you for a while, that you would have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in flesh and in the Lord. So what's he saying here? So Paul is referencing a specific man named Onesimus. And remember, bear in mind, this is in the context of the Roman world. In the Roman world, there were more slaves than free people. And uh, so Paul had met this man, Onesimus. Onesimus was a runaway slave, and he had run away from Philemon. And Paul meets him somehow. We don't know how. Paul shares the gospel with him, and Onesimus becomes saved. And as they're talking... They have one of those uh, connection moments where, you know, Nismus is telling his story, and, you know, I was working for this guy, and he's describing it, and Paul says, wait, was he like a short guy with a, you know, whatever, talked like this, or looked like this, or had a, you know, drove this kind of a car, and Nismus said, yeah, that's him. And he said, I know that guy. He's the pastor, of, or the leader in the, in the church. And so as Paul is, you know, discipling Onesimus, he's saying, hey, you know what? You did not leave on good terms. You ran away from him. Uh, we'll see in a second here. You stole things from him. You need to go back and make it right. And what Paul is not doing, bear this in mind, Paul's not asking this guy just, hey, you know, go say you're sorry. All right? in, in the Roman world, uh, 
running away as a slave was a capital offense. So Paul is potentially asking this guy to put his life on the line. In what? In the name of the gospel. In the name of putting things in his past behind him. And, and bear in mind, you know, there's, there's an interesting irony that happens in this book, which is that Paul is writing this book from prison. He's saying, I'm a prisoner, I'm chained, and he's evangelizing a runaway slave. This guy ran away to find his freedom, and he found freedom by talking to a prisoner. And we can confuse sometimes external change and internal change, right? We, we can mix up and say, wow, Paul is he's just so oppressed, he's in so much bondage. And Paul is sitting there saying, man, this guy Onesimus, he's so oppressed, he's in so much bondage. And Onesimus is sitting there thinking, man, I'm so free, I got away from my master. And Paul's sitting there thinking, man, I know I'm so free because I've been delivered from my former master. And so Paul, he's saying, look, you've got to go back. You've got to make this right. And so he's sending Onesimus back, but he's writing a letter to Philemon to say, hey, you know what? This guy's coming back. He's not coming out of the blue. He's not coming with no context. Let me explain to you what God has done in this guy's life. Let me explain to you the, the work that God is doing so that you're not tempted to write him off. Because it's very tempting when people come back into your life after they've been out for a while, right? What do you remember? You remember them as they were. People don't stay the same, though. People change. I'm not the same person I was five years ago, right? I'm hopefully less stupid, probably not. Uh, <clears throat> but I'm not the same person. Nobody's the same. Nobody, nobody lives a static life. And so, but we tend to assume that on other people. And so Paul's saying, hey, just, I, wanna, I want you to be aware of the fact that the gospel of Jesus Christ has transformed you. The gospel of Jesus Christ has transformed Onesimus. And together, it ought to transform your relationship in a, in a brotherhood. You're no longer master and slave. You're brothers. And he says in verse 17, If you regard me as a partner, then accept him as you would me. But if he's wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge it to my account. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will repay it. Not to mention that you owe to me even your own self as well. Yes, brother. Let me benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. And again, we see this contrast in, in like internal and external chains. Paul says, hey, I know he robbed you on his way out the door. Don't hold that against him. Paul's not telling him sleeping on the rug. Paul says, you know what? Just charge it to me. Right? If you would have sent me some sort of financial contribution, just write that off, keep that in your mind as the repayment of his debt. Do whatever you need. I'll pay it back. And he says... If you do this, Philemon, let me benefit from you in the Lord. He says, if you charge me, I will benefit. And again, it feels backwards. But Paul is saying, look, if I get to pay you back this debt, I'm the winner in this deal. In this financial transaction, I will be out money and I will be in glory. I will be actually, I will enjoy the result. So don't feel bad about it. Don't, don't. Don't, you know, and, and Philemon, you're actually going to receive money, but I'm going to be the recipient. And so what Paul's doing here, it's, just, it's, a, it's a short book. It's a plea to this guy to see a man with fresh eyes and to see someone through the gospel and understand that, you know what? The Holy Spirit changed my life. He changed this guy's life. Therefore, the Holy Spirit needs to change the way I look at this person's life. And it's that, it's, you know, just kind of... Uh, as he's, Paul's wrapping up, he's saying, hey, you know what? You don't, have, you don't have grounds to be bitter against this man. It doesn't matter what he stole from you. Remember that your soul is redeemed, right? Your money 
is hit or miss. So Paul is saying, make sure you understand you do not have an excuse to be bitter. Now, Philemon had this, you know, Onesimus had stolen from him, run away from him. Uh, he did a lot of, a lot of things. Philemon had justification for being bitter, for saying, you know what? No. Or maybe, you know, I'll be gracious. I won't kill you, but why don't you go move somewhere else? Right? Let's just put some distance between us. And Paul's saying, you've got to remember, Philemon, you have no grounds for bitterness because the gospel saved your soul. We're not talking about property here. We're talking about souls and eternity. And, and you know, sometimes there's passages you just come to in the scripture and you've got to pause and remind yourself the scripture gives no one any grounds for bitterness. And that's not to say that people aren't hurt. That's not, the scripture's not denying that it's a brutal world and that people deal with real awful pain in their lives. But what the scripture is saying, what God is saying to us is, that's beside the point. That's beside the point because to be bitter is in really, in essence, to insult the Lord. Because what it is saying is, you know what, God, I understand what this person did to me. I refuse to understand what I did to you. I refuse to understand the depth of what it means that you died for my sins on the cross, that you suffocated for three hours after being traumatized in, in the most barbaric form of torture that has ever been invented, you did that for my sins. And if I was the only person who had ever done anything against you, you would have still done it for me. But I tell you what, God, that's just, that's beside the point. Because this person offended me. This person wronged me. This isn't, this isn't the fact that my sins killed God. Bitterness is saying, yeah, my sins killed God and that's not a big deal. This is, whatever this offense is that this human did to me is a bigger deal than the fact that in essence, I killed God by my sin. And so bitterness is not just destroying your relationship with people. It's not going to just destroy your effectiveness in serving the Lord. It's going to, it's going to put a wedge between you and God because you're taking the most significant thing that God ever did for you in forgiving you and saving you and saying, yeah, that's really not a big deal. I'd rather hold on to something. And so Paul's just saying, dude, you got to let it go. Accept this guy back as a brother. And if there's logistics that need to be taken care of, I'll work through those with you on my end. He's not ignoring that there's, you know, that it's a tangible world, but he's saying, you know what? That's, that's not the primary thing. He's not saying that's not a real thing. He's not saying there aren't times and seasons where you have to protect yourself from dangerous people. But what he's saying is the gospel changed this man and the gospel changed you. And you need to not let bitterness towards past wrongs limit your ability to see what the gospel can do. So Paul writes that letter to Philemon. At the same time, he writes a letter to the church that's meeting in Philemon's house. And that's the book that we know as the letter of Colossians. And Paul's writing this letter, so you can flip over to Colossians if you want to. It's the same time as the book of Philemon, but he's writing it to address a couple issues that have started to creep into the church. And specifically, there was an issue called Gnosticism which uh, Gnosticism, it's, it's kind of from a Greek word that, that means knowledge. So basically it's a, a, a cult of special knowledge, a cult of people who know things. And that's usually what a cult is. Any kind of deviance from, from true Christianity always has special information that normal people don't know, right? But enlightened people or people who pay me just enough money or anything else, right, you can get the special knowledge. And the Gnostics had special knowledge, which was, you know, actually, we know this. There's a teaching that says that Jesus was fully God and fully man, but that's not actually true. 
because we know that your spirit is all good, but your body is all evil. And so Jesus wasn't actually physical. Jesus didn't have a physical body. When Jesus walked along the beach, there weren't any footprints. And you hear that and say, oh, you know, if anybody was going to walk without footprints, it probably would be Jesus. That sounds kind of interesting. I better, I better figure this out. You know, maybe if I get good enough at it, I could levitate my way across the beach too if I pay enough money or whatever. But what it turned into was major heresy on either side because you wind up with two trains of thoughts, okay? So you say everything spiritual is good and everything physical is evil. It was this heresy that comes in and what happened is people do one of two things. They either say, huh, everything physical is evil. That means therefore my body is evil. I need to punish my body to make it more like my spiritual body. And so you would have people torturing themselves, trying to make themselves holier because they knew their body was evil. Or you'd have the opposite effect, which you would have people say, you know what? If my soul is spiritual and good and my body's evil, there's a disconnect between the two. So it really doesn't matter what I do with my body. My soul is still good. And so I can do what I want. I can have whatever relationship I want or inhale whatever substance I want. I can go wherever I want. I can do anything I want with my body because my soul was still good and God sees my heart. And it's really the same, it's a lie that's been going around and is still around in this idea that, well, you know what? You know, there's God's grace and, and God wants me to be happy and, and God understands things and, you know, don't judge me. And that's really where Gnosticism was going. But it was this idea that Jesus is, oh, he's all God, but he's not, he's not really man. Yeah, that'd be almost an insult. I mean, how could you say that, that God is man? And so it was this whole false doctrine that's coming in. And Paul's going to write and say, well, let's, let's set the record straight. Let's talk about who Jesus is. And so Colossians is, uh, some people say it's the most Jesus-centric book of the Bible, which is a pretty high claim because the whole Bible is about Jesus. And every book of the Bible is about Jesus. But if you want to know which book of the Bible is going to try and unpack more than any other who is Jesus Christ? It's the book of Colossians. And so we're going to overview it tonight. Colossians is four chapters. It's the most intense four chapters of the nature and character of Jesus Christ in the scriptures. And so it's important to get an overview, but it is very important that you don't just get an overview. Colossians is meant to be read slowly. You should read Colossians and think it through and consider what is it saying? Right? Read it and say, okay, what does it say? What does it mean? How does it apply to my life? What am I supposed to take away from this? So, Colossians, we are going to do overview for the sake of time, but we're going to try and look at who is Jesus Christ and how is it supposed to impact Paul, this church, our church, and our lives individually. So, again, the same introduction. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Verse 3. And I'll just give you a, a preface, I guess. It kind of depends on your translation. But in Colossians, Paul, he starts talking about Jesus Christ and he gets so excited that he just goes off. And Colossians has some of like the worst run-on sentences anywhere in the Bible. Uh, Paul was a wonderful servant of Jesus Christ. Grammar was not his strongest point. And, and that's fine. Um, so we're going to read some chunks and then we'll kind of, it'd be like one sentence and then we'll back it up. All right. So verse three, we give thanks to God, the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
praying always for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you just as in all the world also it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing even as it has been doing in you also since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow bondservant who was a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf and he also informed us of your love in the spirit. That's one sentence in my translation. Uh, so if you break it down a little bit, and I've, in my Bible, just I've read it several times and kind of broken it down to try and figure out, like, okay, what's the main thought of the sentence? And basically, here's what it reads. We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, because of the hope laid up for you, the gospel which has come to you. It's constantly bearing fruit and increasing. He said, we are so thankful for you guys. We're thankful that the gospel is impacting your life. He's going to remind them of who Jesus is. And once he start off with, we're thankful that Christianity is impacting your life. Who is Jesus? He's the person who's transforming your life. He's doing something right now. He's not this hypothetical, or he's not going to do something someday. He's doing something right now, and we're thankful for it. In verse 9, he goes on, and he says, For this reason also, since the day we've heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you, and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints of light. Paul just goes through his prayer list right there, what he prays for these people. And I would strongly encourage everybody to, as you're reading the scriptures, make a list of the things Paul prayed for people. Make a list of, of how did Paul pray for people? Because honestly, sometimes that's one of our biggest challenges is you want to pray for somebody, you want to pray effectively, but what's the, what's the best way to do it? And sometimes, you know, you, you know a little bit about a person's situation, you know, there's a lot going on, and maybe you ask them, how can I pray for you? And they say, well, you know, I've got this sore on my toe that's just killing me. And you're like, that's great, but that's really not your biggest issue right now. Um, but I don't want to be like, you know, obnoxious. So I'll pray for your toe, but I'd like to pray for something a little more significant in your life than your toe. What do you do? Go back to Paul, okay? I, I, I've written these out. I have these in a, in a little note in my Bible. And sometimes you just need to go through and pray these. God, I pray for this person that they would bear fruit in every good work and increase in the knowledge of you. I pray that they would be strengthened with power. I pray that they would attain steadfastness and patience, right? I pray they would be filled with the knowledge of your will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Those are killer prayers. Those aren't, you know, sometimes you try and pray spiritually, and it usually sounds stupid. But if you're praying the scripture for someone's life, you know you're praying in accordance with the will of God, right? You're not gonna, you're not gonna pray something God says, no, 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 I don't want them to be filled with knowledge of my will. You know, God's not gonna say that. So if you're not sure what to pray for somebody, go to the scripture and pray for them from the word of God. So that's just Paul's prayer list, and then he jumps back because Paul's going to jump his thoughts a little bit here. Remember back in verse 3, and so we give thanks to God because of the gospel and because it's transforming you. And then he goes, he's going back to the gospel. He says, for he, that's the Lord, has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. So he says, God the Father has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and he's transferred us. We have been picked up and move. We've been evacuated to the kingdom of his beloved son 
in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. We are not in the kingdom of darkness, if you're a Christian. You're in the kingdom of the God who forgives your sins. Now, what kind of king is that? Well, it's a great question. And Paul answers it for us. He says, verse 15, and he gives us a big chunk here. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. He says Jesus is the visible evidence of God. If you want to know what God the Father is like, you look at Jesus Christ. If you want to know what the Holy Spirit is like, you look at Jesus Christ. He's the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn of all creation. It's not that, uh, you know, some cults want to take this and say, well, Jesus was the first and Lucifer was the second. That's not what it's saying. It's saying, like the firstborn in a normal family in, at this time culturally, would get all the money, all the goods, all the responsibility, all the power. He's saying Jesus gets all of it. It all belongs to him. He's not sharing his kingdom with anybody else. For by him, all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. And Jesus is the creator of the world. He is before all things, so he predates the world, and in him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. Jesus is the creator, the sustainer, the king. He's the firstborn from the dead. Not that he's the very first person to ever come back from the dead. We have those in the Old Testament. But he's the first person to be resurrected from the dead. Right? In the Old Testament and even in the story of Lazarus, people come back to life and what happens? They die. Lazarus is not still here. Right? Jesus is still here. Jesus is still alive. Right? He's the firstborn. He's the first one who conquered death. And then, uh, so he's going to have first place in everything. Right? It doesn't matter what kind of, you know, it's like, if, I mean, it's, it's a stupid analogy, but if Jesus went to the Olympics, like, well, and Jesus crosses the finish line in first place again. And Jesus is in first again. And it's Jesus. And it's Jesus. And it's Jesus for the gold, right? It's just everything. Everything. Every authority, every rule, every principle, it's all there. He created everything physical and invisible. The law of gravity was created by Jesus Christ. The concept of how light moves was created by Jesus Christ. Sound wave energy was created by Jesus Christ. Stuff that we can't even really unpack or understand. So that we are still, you know, the best scientists will say, like, it does it, but don't ask me how. Jesus did it. And he says, verse 19, for it was the Father's good pleasure for the fullness to dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. He says, and remember, the fullness of God dwelled in him. Jesus was not half God. Jesus was not a man who was a great teacher. He was not a prophet. He was not a miracle worker. He was the fullness of God. And through him, he was able to reconcile all things to himself. This is critical. We've got to understand this. If Jesus is not fully God, he cannot pay for all of our sins. It takes a divine being to be able to to truly absorb all of the sins that every human being could ever commit and say, it's been paid for in full. That's only possible if Jesus is fully God. But verse 21, he goes on and he says, although you were formerly alienated and hostile in your mind and engaged in evil deeds, yet now he has reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. 
if indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast. Now, how did he reconcile us? In his fleshly body. Paul's laying out very clearly here, you've got to understand, Jesus is 100% God. And at the exact same time, he is 100% man. And how does that work? I don't know. Nobody does. Nobody will. It's a, it's, it's a mystery. But it is one of the most critical things for you to understand as a Christian. If you do not understand it, you're really not a Christian. Or if you don't believe it, you're really not a Christian. None of us are going to fully understand it, but we believe it. Because if he's not God, he can't atone for all of our sins. But if he's not man, then he's really not paying for our sins. He, it's, it's a, it becomes a metaphor or a parable or a symbol, but it's not an atonement. It's not, here's a sacrifice. And so Jesus Christ has to be fully God and fully man, or all of Christianity is pointless. And so Paul was explaining to this church that's wrestling with this, well, Jesus was kind of like he had a good part and a bad part. Or it was, Paul says, no, 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 let's make this very clear. Jesus is the beginning of everything. He's the ruler of everything. He's 100% God, and he's 100% man. Anything less than that is not Christianity. And he says, he's presenting you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Because Jesus is all of those things, he can present you and, and to the Father as a holy, blameless, sinless person. Verse 23, if indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast. And we've talked about this before, right? Uh, Paul's given us, you know, the Christianity is full of, of paradoxes, things that sound contradictory, but really they're not. It's just that we aren't smart enough to understand them. So God is 100%, Jesus is 100% God and 100% man. Is that true? Yeah, it's true. Do I understand it? No, not fully. Do they contradict each other? Not really. No, not at all. Because for God to do that, he's God, right? We just read, he's the beginning of everything. He can create dimensions, right? God created a a multi-dimensional world, and then he decided to color it in for fun. He decided to give it texture for kicks. And we say, well, you know, I don't understand this 50, he's got to be 50-50. He says, no, I can be 100-100 if I want to, thank you very much, right? And so God is totally sovereign, but who's responsible? You're responsible to live a life that's pleasing to the Lord. And Paul says, God's going to reconcile you and present you if you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast. Who draws you to the Lord? God does. Are you able to do anything to save yourself or to make God love you more? No, of course not. But you're responsible to continue in the faith. And, and it's, again, it can sound like a paradox, like, well, wait, God's sovereign or I'm responsible. No, God is sovereign and you're responsible. And God being sovereign does not give you an excuse to be a sloppy Christian. And you taking responsibility does not give you the excuse to tell God what he has to do. God is, God is it, both are, are absolutely true. So he's establishing this in chapter one. Chapter two, he's gonna go on a little further and now we've sort of unpacked a bit of who Jesus is. Now you've got to ask yourself, well, what are you going to do about it? Because it's a, if you do nothing with it, then it's a waste, right? Oh, Jesus is fully God. He's fully man. He saved me. Paul says, if you continue. So I want to continue. I want to be presented before God as, what's he say? Holy and blameless and beyond reproach. I like the sound of that. 
I don't want God to look at me and see something to reproach or something sinful. I want God to see, like, he's been made holy by the blood of Jesus Christ. So I have to walk steadfastly. Well, what do I need to do to walk steadfastly? Well, I'm glad you asked. And Paul's glad you asked too. Chapter 2, verse 6. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed, and overflowing with gratitude. What do you do? Because Jesus saved you. Walk in Jesus. Be firmly rooted, be built, be established, and overflow. It's a progression. You walk, and you just keep walking, and it's going to get bigger and better and more glorious and more awesomer, right? You grow in understanding who Jesus Christ is. That, that's really all you can do, in a sense, right? Like, God is so wonderful. We understand that you can't save yourself, and you can't do anything to make God love you more, but the only appropriate response to who Jesus Christ is in Colossians 1 is to say, that's somebody who is worth devoting my entire life to learning more about. And verse 8, he gives a little bit of a corollary. He switches it to a warning. He says, now see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. So I want to be steadfast. What do I need to do? I need to walk in Jesus Christ. And on top of that, I need to see to it, make sure, be certain that I am not being taken captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men. You know, there's a, there's a lot of philosophy in the world, most of which is completely bogus. But there's a lot of philosophy that sounds really smart because they're all really long words. And most of us don't talk in super, super long words on a regular basis. And if we do, we usually throw them out and hope that we use it in the right context. Uh, and you know what it is? It's empty deception. It's lies that have no substance behind them. But it, man, it sounds good. It sounds so compelling. You know, like, wow, Jesus, you know, it makes sense that everything spiritual is good and everything physical is evil. That would explain why I have temptation. And still want to do the right thing, but my body does the wrong thing. This makes so much sense. I should go have sin whenever I want and just know that God loves me. Paul says, you better watch out and make sure that nobody takes you captive. Because those philosophies will lead you captive. And if you want to walk in Christ, you cannot walk in Christ if you are chained to a philosophy or a deception. Right? Walking is an act of freedom. Being taken captive is not. You're going to be one or the other. You're either free or a slave. You're going to be free in Christ or a slave to what the world is telling you is true. And he goes on in verse 9. He says, for in him, in Jesus Christ, he's going to go back and just remind us some more of what Je who Jesus is and what he's done. In him, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Everything about who God is was bottled up and packaged into one physical human being. And in him, you have been made complete. In Jesus Christ, you are complete in the eyes of God. And he is the head over all rule and authority. He's in charge of everything. And in him, you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands and the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. He's going back to the Old Testament here and saying circumcision in the Old Testament was a symbol of, I want to remove the flesh from my body. I want to remove those sinful desires. He's saying Jesus Christ is doing that in you right now. Verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism, 
in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Jesus isn't just removing your sin. He's also raising you to life. That's why we're baptized. As a symbol of, hey, in the same way that Jesus Christ went down in the grave and came up resurrected as the firstborn to rise from the dead, I want to go down in a, in a metaphorical grave and I want my sins to die. I want my old nature, I want all those things that I used to want to die and I want to be raised up to life so that I can walk in Jesus Christ. That's why we get baptized. Baptism doesn't save you. There are churches that say that baptism is a requirement for salvation. That's not true. Baptism is a command from God. You do baptism. You get baptized because you're obeying the Lord. And so he says, when you were dead, verse 13, when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. He's forgiven all, he has canceled out every debt of sin against you. And it's not that Jesus ignored your sins. It's not that Jesus said, well, you know, it's not really a big deal. It's not that he said, well, we'll, we'll you know, as, we'll overlook it this one time. No, no, no. Your sins were nailed to the cross. Your sins are the reason Jesus was on the cross. And so your sins have not been covered. Your sins haven't been, you know, like, you haven't made a down payment on your sins. Your sins are gone. They are, they are, your sins, you know, Jesus died on the cross, was taken down from the cross, your sins stayed there. Your sin did not come down off the cross. Your sin is canceled out and paid in full if you've believed in Jesus Christ and asked him to bring that forgiveness into your heart. Right, Paul? So this is all that Jesus has done and all that he wants to do. And he's going to present you blameless and holy if you're steadfast to walk in him. If you've accepted him as your Lord and as your Savior. So verse 8 to 15 there, who's the main point? Who's the main focus? Jesus. Do you know how many times Paul says the word he in reference to Jesus Christ? He's, it's all over. For in him, in him, he is, in him, with him, with him, him, he, with him, he, 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 him. Paul's, the whole paragraph is about Jesus Christ. It's about the fact that Jesus has done everything. He is everything in terms of our salvation. And so, verse 16, Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. He's saying, guys, if Jesus has done everything for you, if Jesus has saved you and he's making you alive and he's making you holy, then why would you think that adding like extra rules is going to do anything? If you think that adding an extra rule to your life is going to make you more holy or make God love you more, then all that demonstrates is that you completely missed the entire paragraph before it. You are completely missing the point. If you think, well, you know, if I, if I quit this, God will love me more. No, 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 no. You have entirely missed what Jesus did on the cross. And Paul's saying, don't let anybody tell you that. Don't let anybody sell you that. In verse 23 of chapter 2, he says, these are matters which have to be sure the appearance of wisdom and self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. Paul says, look, I know these things look good. They sound good. They make you feel superior, but they are zero help when it comes to living a holy life. These things will do absolutely nothing 
to make you more holy. Now, we said that Christianity is full of paradoxes. Where sometimes it's, the Bible will say something that sounds contradictory until you say, wait a second, no, it's actually not. So Paul here says, all right, listen, Jesus Christ did everything for you, so therefore, why would you think that you can do one more thing for him? And in chapter 3, he's going to start talking about, here's the things you should do for Jesus Christ. And so, if you're not careful, it'll sound like he's going to contradict himself. That's not what he's doing. We talked about this in Romans and Galatians and everything, and we've been really hitting it pretty nonstop, okay? So we're not going to spend a ton of time on it, but remember, we do not do things for the Lord to be saved or to make him love us more or even to make him like us more. We do things for the Lord because it's the only appropriate response for what he's done, right? If somebody, if you're, if you're dying, if, you get, you know, if your car rolls over and, and uh, you're smashed underneath and somebody comes along and pulls you out and resuscitates you and bandages everything else, thank you would be a good thing to say, right? In fact, it would really be like the only reasonable thing. Like if somebody, you know, your, your leg's broken and they cut off your, you know, they slit open your pants to splint it and you say, dude, that was my favorite pair of pants. Really? I mean, these, they, they were, whatever these are, I don't know what these are. Um, man, I, I got, those were, those were great jeans. You just cut them open to save my life. And so, no, what, what, what do you do? If somebody saves your life, you tell them thank you, right? So there's, there's an appropriate response. And Paul's saying that. Jesus Christ has done everything for you, right? He didn't just like pull you out of a car. He pulled your soul out of hell. And so there's an appropriate response, and that is, wow, because God has done so much, and because he's actually made me holy, I want to participate in that holiness, I want to know what that really feels like to be in the middle of the holiness of God. So chapter 3 is going to give us this. And uh, so chapter 3, so starting in verse 5, he's going to give us a list of things. He's going to say, put these things off. There's some things you just take off. Sometimes, you know, you have your favorite shirt or your favorite, I'm not really the best example for this because I wear my clothes into the ground. Uh, You have your favorite pair of socks, your favorite pair of shoes, your favorite pair of pants. There's a point sooner or later and for some of us, it's much, much later. But there's a point sooner or later where that just needs to go in the trash. Or you need to go in Google. Some things you just got to put off because they're not making you look good. They're actually making you look like a bum. And so he says, verse 5, Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And in them you also once walked when you were living in them, but now you also put them aside. If you've been raised to life, you need to consider your body dead to these things. Immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, greed. Verse uh, 8. But now you also put them all aside. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another. Since you have laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. He's saying, you know, when you take off your clothes, you put new clothes on. Okay, that's sort of basic intuitive human knowledge, right? So you laid aside the old self. When you were baptized, and you accepted Jesus Christ into your heart, you, you made that declaration of, I want to lay aside those things. He's saying, you took off those clothes. Don't put those clothes back on. It is not time to go back to those old clothes or those old habits or that old lifestyle. So he's going to say verse 12. So, 
as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on. So your old clothes came off. Your old sinful life came off when you were baptized, when you accepted Jesus Christ into your heart. Now it's time to put some new clothes on. Put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has to complain against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Again, you know, think back to Philemon. He's talking to Oni about Onesimus. He says, you remember, God forgave you, God forgave him. You should forgive him. He's saying, you move past bitterness. He says, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Can I tell you something? Remember these things in your life. Remember that what God is telling you to put on. If you need a little help, I came up with this last year. Cool kids hate girly parties. Compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. And it's stupid as all get out. But you'll probably remember it now, okay? So just remember, you put it on. You put these things on. Uh, verse 14, but beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Love each other. Let the love of God impact your hearts. Verse 15, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Verse 16, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another, with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. That's what you're supposed to put on. You put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. You put on love. You put on the word of Christ. You let the peace of God rule in your hearts. And whatever you do, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Can I tell you something? Whatever you put on is what people are going to see. Right? If, if you're... Uh, a clothing person you can look at somebody's clothes and sort of get a feel for where they shop you can sort of get a pulse on like how much money they probably budget out for clothes right if that's your thing that's your hobby is stalking people's clothing uh, you can get a pulse like okay this person shops at stores that are kind of in this price range or this price range because why because it's visible it's on the outside of their body it's, it's the things they have put on Okay, what, you, what people see in your life is what you've been putting on. And, and sooner or later, what you put into your heart is what people see, right? There's a currency that we deal in in our lives. There are things, you know, you buy things. Right here, we buy things with United States dollars. I have no idea what anything I own is worth in pounds or euros or yen. I don't even have a clue. Right? I mean, what, what is, how many yen is a car worth? I don't know. I, I, I doubt anybody in this room could tell me right now what their car is worth in yen. Because that's not our currency. We deal in dollars. And Paul's saying, look, there's a currency in your life, and it needs to be the currency of Jesus Christ. But you've got to ask yourself, what kind of currency am I dealing in? It says we deal in a, in a currency of self-indulgence, or a currency of, you know, just self-obsession, or, you know, we can deal in a currency of Good books, bad books, we can deal in a currency of stupid 15-second videos. And you know what's going to come out? Stupid 15-second videos. We can deal in currency. And Paul says, your currency needs to be the word of Christ richly dwelling in you. And I know we're getting late. We're going to just wrap up a couple thoughts here, all right? Um, verse 18 down through the end of the chapter of chapter 3, he's going to go into relationships. 
and he's going to address wives, husbands, children, slaves, and masters. Um, in our cultural context, slaves and masters really can very easily be thought of as employees and employers. Um, but just briefly, we're here. We'll cover it. He's going to talk about wives and husbands, and you might be in the room right now thinking, Nate is single. He therefore has no grounds to say, uh, to read these verses. And you're not entirely wrong, but you're not entirely right either, because, and I say that not arrogantly, but I say it this way. The Word of God gives principles that are universal, and the application is sometimes personal, okay? So what we're going to read in Colossians is a universe, are universal truths for marriage and kids and and parenting, and they're there, and they're very real. What I can do is stand up here and say, here's what the Word of God says is the universal truth. I can't, therefore, go, and here's what you should do in your personal application. So we're going to read it in a more of a universal, broad-based sense. Wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and don't be embittered against them. Children, be obedient to your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not exasperate your children so they will not lose heart. These are universal truths. If you're a wife, respect your man and stand by him. Now, if you're a wife, that's going to look very different based on who your man is. So you've got to figure it out. How does your man need to see that you respect him? If you're a husband, you need to love your woman. And you need to love her in the way that she needs to be loved. And that's not the way that somebody else's wife needs to be loved. That, that's the way that your wife needs to be loved. And so it's a universal truth that a man needs respect and a woman needs love. But you've got to figure out how, how to apply that. My only encouragement would be don't just walk out of here and assume I've got it down pat. So just keep that in mind. Children, be obedient to your parents. Now I can speak to this one a little bit more personally because I've been a child. Obey your parents. For this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Sometimes when you're a kid, okay, if you're a, if you're a young person in the room and you've grown up as a Christian, sometimes a, one of the most challenging things can be I want to do something big for God. I, I, want to, I want to do something like a real Christian. I want to do something that's going to matter. And Paul right here says, obeying your parents is well-pleasing to the Lord. God looks at the obedience of a child and says, that rocks. I am so stoked that that kid is walking in obedience. And that's a, that's a significant thing. God doesn't say that just for kicks. He says it because he means it. So obedience... Is a, is a big deal in the eyes of God. It's not a little thing. Fathers, don't exasperate your children. I think Paul says this for a reason. He doesn't say moms don't exasperate your children. Some translations say don't provoke your children to wrath. You know what? It's just an observation that sometimes dads just enjoy bugging their kids. And, and, and you know what? I think teasing is an important part of growing up. I think it's healthy. But your kids need to know the line between when you're teasing them and when you're not. And, you know, I've heard it said that every daughter just wants to know, do you see me? And every son just wants to know, do I have what it takes? And don't, don't annoy your kids by withholding that from them. Give, let, don't provoke your kids to wrath. Teach your kids. Have fun with your kids. Be a heck of a fun parent, by all means. Right? Be a little sparky and, and make it good. But, uh, but don't exasperate your kids. And then he's going to say, you know, basically slaves or employees, work hard, employers, be fair. Verse, chapter 4, 
In verse two, as he's wrapping up, he says, devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. That verse is crazy to me, because Paul says, you devote yourselves to prayer. Why? Because of Jesus. Because of all that Jesus has done. Because of who Jesus Christ is. Because you are wanting to walk steadfastly in the Lord, what should you do? You should devote yourself to prayer. How? With an attitude of thanksgiving. Now, when we think of prayer, you know, if, if you were to describe, like, this was an intense time of prayer, and all kinds of incredible things were happening, and I went to this crazy prayer meeting, and people were falling down and repenting, and whatever else, whatever your, you know, church background is, and it was, it was a great prayer meeting. We usually have this idea of what that looks like. And usually, like, the first word that comes to mind isn't always thankful. We think, like, exciting, passionate, intense, powerful, thankful. Paul says, devoted prayer, intense prayer is thankful prayer. If you want to be a, if you want to be an, if you want to have prayer that's effective, be a thankful person. And then he, he goes on, he says, verse five, conduct yourselves with wisdom towards outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. God's going to give you opportunities to interact with this world. And you, if you're staying in this room and you've accepted Jesus Christ, you're holy, you're blameless. The world you're interacting with is not. But God wants them to be. He's going to give you opportunities. Make the most of them. Take advantage of them. Uh, Let your speech, verse 6, always be seasoned with grace as though with salt. So when are you going to say things? Passion is, is a wonderful thing. Truth is a wonderful thing. Grace is very important because the grace of God is what saved you, it's what saved me, and it's what's going to save any other person who accepts the Lord. And then he goes on and gives a bunch of benedictions, and basically he's saying hi from different people in the area. And just verse 17, he says, say to Archippus, we have no idea who Archippus is, but it's his last benediction in the book, take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord that you may fulfill it. Paul says, hey, because of everything Jesus has done, Because of who Jesus is, because you've been saved, because you want to walk steadfastly, Archippus, because all those things are true for your life, take heed to the ministry that you've received in the Lord that you may fulfill it. That's a great exhortation for all of us, right? Just what does the Lord put right in front of you? Pay attention to it. Don't gloss over it too quickly or too prematurely, right? Take heed. Fulfill it. And then he says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my imprisonment. Grace be with you. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you now and forever. Because that's, that, you know, what is, who is Jesus? He's a God of grace. And, and judgment comes and, and all those things come, but above and beyond everything else, Jesus is a God who offers us grace that we don't deserve. And that's what we need. That's how we need to respond to the Gospels to recognize the grace that we've been given. So let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you that we have experienced your grace. Lord, I pray that as we're just in the book of Colossians and Philemon tonight, that we would better understand and comprehend who Jesus Christ is. That our minds would be opened to grasp more fully the truths that you've laid out for us in these books. That we would have hearts that want to know, that want to understand and comprehend, that you would just just do a work, God. Expand our ability to know you. We want to draw closer, be more filled, to walk in holiness, to put things off and put things on. God, I pray that you would do that work in our lives. Let us go out from here looking for opportunities. And we want to give you all the praise and the glory. We want to be diligent and faithful servants. 
because of what you've done. And it's in the name of Jesus Christ, our King, our Savior, our Creator, and our God of grace that we pray. Amen.